If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, part of the Christians for Liberty Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Winograd. So for today's episode, we are going to be diving into a little bit more biblical theology here. So because of what's going on with the conflict and war that's broken out in Israel, we're seeing a lot of sentiments being shared among the evangelical Christian right regarding support for Israel, a rise in Christian Zionism and in dispensationalist rhetoric and support. And that is not something that I believe is true or biblical. If you listen to this podcast and you are a Zionist or you believe in dispensationalist theology or you have some kind of support for a modern state of Israel on biblical grounds, we believe that the covenant with the Jews God made is still in effect in some way, then this episode, you know, is not meant as a attack on you, but rather just a respectful challenge that I think that you know, I would hope that you would listen in good faith and hear what I have to say and consider challenging your views. This is done in the spirit of all of us being brothers in Christ and trying to seek unity. And while I don't want to speak from a place of pride or trying to look down on other Christians and or try to suggest that if you don't always agree with my position that you're wrong or a worse Christian, as always, Salvation comes through Christ alone, and I'm never going to attack people's identity in Christ or their status and their salvation based on differences in theology, at least not on things that are not what I would consider especially foundational. I tend to only get really severe in drawing those lines when it comes to the identity of Christ, when it comes to the Trinity, when it comes to what Jesus did on the cross. So there are some things I will draw those lines on. This isn't one of them, but it is a topic that I do think is important because I think that dispensationalist and Zionist mindsets in Christian theology, they do harm to our witness. I think that they also dilute the true significance of the cross and the covenant that Jesus has made, the new covenant that he has made. And I also don't think it's a service to the Jewish people who I think do need a savior just like everyone else. And so I don't want to promote something that would lead anyone astray. We should all be striving towards the truth. And that's what I'm trying to bring forth here. And while I don't usually dive into just straight theology on this podcast, there's usually some sort of political connection. And I would say in this one there is, and it might not be apparent right away, but by the end, I think it will. So... We're going to be going into many different passages here, and I'm not going to be able to do like full line-by-line exegesis of all of them, 
but rather I'm trying to show how I think that there is a theme that is consistent throughout the entirety of Scripture, and that actually would fly in the face of dispensationalist theology. I would hold to what is usually called covenantal theology or fulfillment theology. A lot of people who disagree with this will use a pejorative term to describe it. They call it replacement theology. So just some prefaces there. You can look up more on those different theological worldviews. I'm not going to go into the history of Zionism or the history of dispensationalism in this episode because while not irrelevant, they're not especially relevant to the points that I'm trying to make here. This episode could get really lengthy and complicated if I was trying to define and address all aspects of dispensationalist theology and Christian Zionism versus alternative views that I and other Christians hold. Dispensationalism has elements of it that are incredibly eschatological and based on biblical prophecy. And then there's elements that are based on covenant scriptures and based on what we think about the different covenants in the Bible and what sort of theology we drive from what the Bible says about these different covenants. So these are all important aspects that should be talked about. And I think I'll be doing different episodes focusing on different areas as the uh, months progress. This episode is going to focus more on the covenantal aspect of dispensationalist theology. So if you are a dispensationalist or against dispensationalism and you're looking more forward to arguments addressing the eschatology, that's not what this episode is going to be focused on. That stuff is, again, not unimportant, but I don't think it is the core of what, even if I believe that the claims of like dispensationalist theology where they connect different passages in, in the Old Testament, different prophecies, you know, looking at Daniel and they create this weird construction with the end times and suggesting that what Jesus did was because of the Jews rejecting him. And so the Gentiles are grafted in, but this is to look forward to some sort of future re-grafting in of the kingdom of Israel. And that that's part of this whole end time thing. And a lot of that is super complicated. And the disadvantage in addressing that, that trying to do it in a time sufficient manner, is difficult. And so to do that in this episode is just not going to happen. I'll do more research to make sure I fully understand the eschatological viewpoint of dispensationalists, and I will address that in a future episode. But today's episode is going to focus more on the covenantal aspect, on God made a covenant with Abraham, God made a covenant with Moses, and then there is the speaking of a new covenant as well, both in the Old Testament and then confirmed in Jesus. And what do these covenants mean? And I think that is incredibly important to understand. Even if we disagree on eschatology, I think that there is more room for different eschatological views in those who adhere to the gospel than there is for different views on how we view these covenants. I think that there is more desire in me to seek unity and to argue on these covenantal grounds than there is on eschatological grounds, if that makes sense. So 
we will address the claims, you know, of different prophecies and, you know, eschatology of dispensationalists in a different future episode. And throughout this episode, I will sort of somewhat clumsily, I might be talking about dispensationalist theology and also call it Zionist theology or equate the two, because it mostly is. I suppose it's possible for someone to be a Christian Zionist and not do that on dispensationalist grounds, but I think the normal fervent Christian Zionism that really argues in favor of the modern nation state of Israel and would try to seek to defend or justify everything that Israel does comes from more of the Christian dispensationalist theology. So anyway, sorry, that's a little bit more in terms of caveats and explanations than I might typically give in an episode, but I'm diving into just incredibly complex and commercialist waters. And so I thought that it would be beneficial to, at the beginning, really explain the specific area that I want to tackle in this episode. And again, we'll be probably ongoing through the rest of this winter and into the new year. Here and there, we'll retackle dispensationalism and talk about its different aspects. So with that out of the way, we're going to start in the New Testament, but don't worry, we're going to be bringing Old Testament passages up here as well. And so we're going to start in the book of Romans, I think, which will be in chapter nine. Basically, what we're trying to ask here is, what has happened with the Old Testament covenants? And you could kind of identify two covenants in the Old Testament. You could identify the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis. And then you could say that there was a more specific covenant made with the Israelites through Moses that was connected to that Abrahamic covenant, but not necessarily synonymous. And this does get rather complicated, and this is not something that necessarily all Christian theologians and scholars would agree with. It does get a little messy when talking about the differences and overlap between the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. But I think that they are different enough, although that overlap does exist. But we're, we're talking about what the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant was, and then the promises that were made in the Abrahamic Covenant, who are the inheritors of that covenant? So those are the questions we're trying to answer. We're trying to answer what has been done with the Mosaic Covenant and what has been done with the Abrahamic Covenant. I would argue the onset here, just to kind of say where I'm going, I would say the Mosaic Covenant has been fulfilled by Christ and brought to an end. So the Mosaic Covenant has been fulfilled, and I would say Christ is the fulfillment of that Mosaic Covenant. This is similar to what Greg Bowes and I talked about in our episode on the conquest of Canaan. You know, the Mosaic Covenant was part of what we were describing in that eschatological intrusion in that episode. So I'll have a link for that in the show notes because some of that's going to cross over into this. But the Abrahamic Covenant, I would argue, is still in operation but that would be in the sense that it has been fulfilled and the promises of that covenant are going to still be in effect, but we have to ask, who are they for? And so that is why I think Romans 9 is the place that we need to start. So chapter 9, beginning in first one. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who was God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. What's he talking about here? Let's just pause here for a second. He's saying that he wishes he could be cut off for his brothers, for the Jewish people. And then he's saying it's not as though the word of God has failed. Well, who is saying the word of God has failed? What's the context here? To briefly summarize, in Romans 7 and 8, we have Paul kind of expounding on the transition from man pursuing righteousness through the law and through the flesh. And instead, now through Christ, we are called to pursue that in through the spirit and that the law cannot make us good. Uh, the law cannot save us. We are not able to do what is good in the eyes of God apart from the redeeming grace of God and from his spirit enabling us to do so. And so there's a lot spoken of in chapters seven and eight regarding this transition, regarding the juxtaposition between the law and the flesh versus the spirit and the grace that comes through this new covenant. So this is obviously going to a Jewish audience and to Paul's mind, who is a trained Jewish mind, something that needs to be reconciled. So it's basically saying, well, has God changed the covenant or did God's old covenant fail? Like, is he breaking his promises? How can we square this with the idea that God is a God who keeps his promises, who never changes, who's trustworthy? And so that, I think, is the context that Paul is referring to and the objections he's anticipating and attempting to answer here. So to go back into it, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. To quote from the Old Testament, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So to pause here again for a second, what does that mean? Well, this is a reference to the fact that Abraham had more than one son. Sorry, my cat's meowing at me. <laughs> he had Ishmael first. But even though Ishmael was one of Abraham's sons, he was not a child of the promise. So that's what it's talking about there in verse 7. So it says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named this means that it is not children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So it was not all who were of Abraham's flesh that were inheritors of Abraham's promise. So right away, Paul is kind of pointing out, well, from the beginning, it wasn't just a blind anyone who is from the genealogy of Abraham. No, it, first we see it's from those who are the children of the promise, which discounted Ishmael. So let's continue here then. In verse nine, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will the molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. By the way, the stone of stumbling is definitely an allusion to Christ there. So there's a lot there in that chapter alone. And I mean, I could almost make an entire podcast or, you know, like series on Romans 9. There is just so much there, not just relating to covenantal theology, but also relating to God's sovereignty, election, predestination, free will. This gets into Calvinism and free will versus determinism, soteriology, all stuff that I find immensely interesting and important. We're going to leave that stuff aside, even though I am of the Reformed persuasion and definitely have perspectives on this chapter. But all Christians, regardless of if you're Reformed or not, we should be able to agree on the covenantal teaching here that is not just echoed in this passage. I mean, even in this passage, we see Paul making his own case. He refers to Abraham. He refers to Jacob and Esau. He refers to passages in Hosea and in Isaiah as well. And so Paul is making the case quite clearly here that, you know, let's go back up to verse six. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all who are children of Abraham are his offspring. So right there in Romans nine, we see that 
this idea being made that the descendants of Abraham are not just according to the flesh. And we can expound upon this in other passages to support this claim that Paul is making here, that God has sovereignty over his covenant and that his covenant with the Jews was never, even from the beginning, a strict, well, all of your descendants, just based on the flesh, based on genealogy, are going to be the true descendants of Israel or the true descendants of Abraham. It's not according to the flesh, but according to the promise and according to those who pursue righteousness by faith. So that's Paul's essential claim here, is that those who are Israel are not those who are just according to the flesh, but those who are in Christ. We can see this echoed in Galatians. We'll look in Galatians chapter three, starting in verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It also says before this section I just read in Galatians 3. I should have done this in order, but I'm doing it out of order just because it's what made sense in my mind. We'll start in verse 5. Do he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what he was referring to later on in verse 11. The righteous shall live by faith. Just as know then picking up in verse seven, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now we'll pick up in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For the, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So then why then the law well, was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made and has been put in place through angels by an intermediary. So right there, we have everything said that I said at the beginning, the Mosaic law, the law, the Mosaic covenant, which was the law, that has been fulfilled in Christ. And Christ was the offspring that was referred to, who is the inheritor of the promise of Abraham. And we are co-inheritors in that because Christ is in us, because we die and are born again with Christ and become inheritors with him. This is what is said many times in the New Testament. And I'm, I'm gonna jump ahead to the end of this chapter here, starting in verse 23. 
Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is almost like, I don't have to make much of an argument because I think the scripture just states it quite clear and quite plainly. And this goes on, you know, Galatians chapter four, Paul continues to make these points as well, adding on to everything he said, in Galatians 3. Here in Galatians 4, we see kind of echoed again what he talked about in Romans 9, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman, but the son of the slave was according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And then it goes on later in verse 29, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. What does the scripture say? cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So this is, you know, again, what we see echoed in Romans nine. Now this is all new Testament and Paul. Some people might ask, well, what did Jesus say about the new covenant and the Jewish people? And also is there support for this idea in the old Testament? Aside from the fact that, Paul, in all these passages I've been reading, has been alluding to the Old Testament, to the old scriptures, in all of his his arguments and all of his points. But it's fair to ask where else this can be found, and so we can do that. As for Jesus, I mean, although I could pull up more than just one example, I think the most prudent example is really just the Last Supper. Jesus says, this is the blood of my new covenant. So clearly there's a new covenant, and that's straight from the horse's mouth right there, right? Luke 22, verse 20, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this is something that Jesus says, this is something that Paul reiterates and he makes Old Testament allusions to. And we can go find more Old Testament allusions to the anticipation of a new covenant and the foreshadowing of this new covenant. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses speaks about looking forward to a time when Israel would be given a heart to understand. And Moses is predicting that Israel is going to fail to keep the old covenant, but then that there will be a time of restoration. I'm summarizing Deuteronomy 29 and 30, just for the simplicity of time, you can go read those passages. And what Moses says in Deuteronomy, this is in 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and all your soul and live. And so, you know, it's a difference between the covenant they're living under and the future covenant. The law will be written on our hearts and the circumcision won't be of the flesh, but of our hearts will be given, you know, new hearts that are not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh that we can love God and actually seek after him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and all of our strength. Where else can we find allusions to a new covenant in the Old Testament? Well, we can look to the book of Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
But I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. So Moses predicted they would break it. Now this is past tense. They broke it. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Clearly, this is an Old Testament prophetic vision of Jesus coming, of what Jesus will do on the cross and the establishment of the new covenant. When we no longer have to live according to the flesh, we can live according to the spirit. Another passage that we can bring up is Ezekiel 37. And actually a lot of what's in Ezekiel 37 is sort of what the passage we just read in Jeremiah is sort of pulling from or echoing. So we'll start in verse 20. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from around and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them. They will never again be two nations or divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with idols or vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all of their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. Kind of like what passage in Jeremiah was saying, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. I will make a covenant of peace with them. He goes on in verse 26, and it'll be an everlasting covenant. So again, we see Old Testament support for a new covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers and I'll put my sanctuary among them forever. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy and my sanctuary is among them forever. Now I could honestly keep going. I, in my research for this, found so many different New Testament, Old Testament supports for this idea that there is a new covenant. Now, I think what some people object to here is they go, well, just because there's a new covenant doesn't mean that the old covenant is gone away with, but really that, that has to be the case. We have three sort of covenants here in play. We have the Mosaic covenant. We know that has been ended and fulfilled in what Jesus did. So the Mosaic covenant, I mean, the door is shut on that. The only people who get that confused are theonomists. And if you're a theonomist listening to this, well, We'll deal with that on a separate episode. But I think in some of the passages I read earlier, it was made clear that Jesus has fulfilled the law and the Mosaic covenant. And so those were temporary. We no longer live under the law. The law was, was useful. I'm not saying the law was bad, but it was good in what it was meant to be. It is not like an, an eternal covenant or an eternal good in all contexts. Now, the Abrahamic covenant, see, this is what a lot of the dispensationalists and Zionist types will argue, they'll say, well, the Jews are still under the Abrahamic covenant. But I, again, I don't see how you can come away with that conclusion after everything we've just said. And it's clear from the beginning that the Abrahamic covenant was not going, even from the, before Christ, always pointed to Christ and always pointed to the idea that people who were the inheritors of this promise were not going to be just those according to the flesh, those according to genealogy or ethnicity 
that it would have, and, and this is then concluded in what we see Paul and Jesus conclude that this new covenant. So again, we have one new covenant we're living under now. The Mosaic covenant was, there were two old covenants, right? They were both fulfilled, but the Mosaic covenant was fulfilled and that is done. The Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled, but the fulfillment of that was the new covenant. And that was prophesied about, that was spoken about by Moses in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Jeremiah, the book of Isaiah. I mean, it is right there in what we just read. And so that is the problem with these other theologies. And that's why I think fulfillment theology or covenant theology is correct. It's not replacement theology because it was never according to the flesh in the first place. The covenant wasn't anyone who is a son of Abraham or anyone who was a son of Jacob or a son of Israel was automatically part of Israel. That was never the case from the beginning. And so we can't read that back into it now. In the end of Galatians in chapter six, we see this phrase referring to the Israel of God and says, as for those who follow this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. And it is, I think, quite clear because there's debate over who the Israel of God is. But if we read the preface to this, what is actually in Galatians 6, he's again echoing the, you're not saved through circumcision, you're not saved through being Jewish and all that. He echoes everything else he says in Galatians that, you know, the gospel is that you are saved through grace by faith and that it is through that faith that we obtain righteousness. And so who is the Israel of God that Galatians 6 is talking about? Well, it's Jesus. It is the Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. He is the new Israel. We can go back to the beginning of the entire biblical corpus. Go back to Genesis. And it's prophesied in the garden after the fall that the offspring of Eve will crush the serpent. So we can see that from the very beginning, God had been working in this plan of redemption, this plan of salvation, of redeeming mankind, of redeeming his elect back to him, of conquering death, of conquering sin. Nothing surprises God. He had this plan, this sovereign plan of redemption, which is what the gospel speaks of. And that is what we're talking about here today. And so that was the plan from the beginning. And so we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. He is that new Israel. And the good news of the gospel is that the gospel tells us that we can be the true Israel of God as well. Because if we are in Christ, then we are adopted as sons of God. We're not sons of God by nature as Christ is, but we are sons of God because we have been born again, because we have died with Christ and we have risen with him in his resurrection. And now we are co-inheritors in those covenant blessings. The Israel of God is the church. It is all of those who believe and who obtain righteousness by faith. Now, I want to be clear here. This doesn't mean the Jews are cut off. If there was such a thing as replacement theology, it would be to say the Jews have been cut off and are now cut off forever. But that would be like inverting the problems of dispensationalist or like more Zionist or dual covenant theology. 
Because they say, well, no, being Jewish is special, and that tames you some sort of special righteousness or you have some kind of special covenant based on the flesh, based on ethnicity. That's not true. And nor would it be true to imply the opposite, that you are cut off forever because of your ethnicity or because of the flesh. No. And this is spoken of in Romans 11. The Jews can be grafted back in. Any Jewish person can come to saving faith, but they don't obtain, again, the point of all the scripture I have read this entire podcast has been that becoming an inheritor of the promise of Abraham, obtaining that righteousness is not done through the flesh. It's through faith. It's that simple. And so that's why it's not replacement theology. It is fulfillment theology. It's covenant theology. And so that's the good news. Really, it's just the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ as King who came down died on the cross, established his kingdom, which is not of this world, and that now he is the offspring of Abraham that we can inherit those promises through, that we can have that righteousness, that we can have the relationship with God no longer separated. That's what the veil being torn is about. (laughs) It's about the separation between us and God is no longer there. That because of what Christ has done, not through our own efforts, not through anything we have done, but through what Christ has done, we can be counted as righteous and he does not look upon our sin and he doesn't even remember it. He doesn't even see it when he looks at us. He looks at us through the blood of Christ and he sees us as redeemed. And if we live by that, if we live by that spirit, we can live as redeemed people and as a redeemed church, as the body of Christ. And so that is what covenant or fulfillment theology is, and really it's just an affirmation of the gospel, the beauty of what it is and the good news that it is. So I think that's important. Anytime we deviate away from that, we are going to fall back into trying to obtain righteousness through the flesh. The reason this applies to what I focus on on this podcast is that this Zionist or dispensationalist theology is used to support the idea that there's something special about the Jewish people that people then use, you know, evangelical Christians of this bend, I think use this theology to basically support unmask anything that the modern nation state known as Israel does. Now, it'd be one thing I was having this conversation with a Jewish person. That's a completely different conversation. That's over the legitimacy of the New Testament scriptures, the legitimacy of the interpretation of those Old Testament prophecies referring to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But you know, that's an important thing to end on here too, is that again, I say this a lot and we're broken record, but it needs to be said. The Jews would have been happy with a Jesus who was coming to establish a political kingdom, who was coming to tell them that they could have still obtained righteousness by being Jewish. Like Jesus didn't come to just add the Gentiles in. Like there's not dual covenants at play here. There's no evidence for that in scripture. Rather, there is one covenant that God made with Abraham that Christ fulfilled, and that now anyone who has faith in Christ can inherit that promise with Christ. So we have to be careful to not try to pursue salvation through the flesh, and we have to be careful to not use ethnicity or genealogy or any other kind of collective identity outside of Christ as some sort of claim of merit or claim of specialness. Those don't exist. 
The only identity that matters is our identity in Christ. The only nationality that matters is the nationality we obtain when we become part of the kingdom of God. We become sons and daughters in that kingdom. And so I will end on that. Although just keep in mind that this covenantal and fulfillment theology and opposition to dispensationalist or or Zionist theology is going to come up a lot in coming months as we continue to cover what's going on in the conflict and war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas and the Palestinian people who are caught up in the middle. And again, this, this is not a hatred for the people living in Israel. It's not a hatred for the Jews. It's not saying they deserve anything bad or good, right? They need to be treated or judged on their own merit, not be given some special status because they're Jewish. It would be equally wrong to condemn all people because they're Jewish or to say that they're exempt or somehow special because they're Jewish. That is the point that I'm trying to make here. Well, that is all I have for today's episode. I hope that what I said made sense. I hope that it's encouraging and a blessing. As always, if this kind of material, the things I talk about on this podcast, if you enjoy, if they bring value to you and you want to consider supporting the work that I do and the work that we do here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you would consider making you know, a donation, whether it's one-time donation, cost of a cup of coffee, give us like $5 or something. If you want to do more than that, consider becoming a monthly contributor. If you do it at $10 a month or more, you become an LCI insider. And there's a lot of perks that come along with that. So you can go to biblicalanarchypodcast.com to find out more on that. And that's all I got for you guys. Talk to you again next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.